This presentation is from UX Australia 2019, Sydney. I'd like to introduce you to Sophie, who is an applied anthropologist and a good friend of mine from Deloitte Digital's customer strategy and design team. Very happy to be next to her here. Her master's thesis looked at uh, social media identity and friendships um, before she started at Deloitte, and now she conducts research with organisations and also human beings, and that's really important, and loves solving tricky problems and asking different kinds of questions. Sophie, are you a fixer or a provocateur? Which one would you pick? I told you I'd throw in questions you weren't ready for. This is the thing with uh, inviting you in. We didn't know what you were going to do. Um, I, I like to provoke. Yep. And so, yeah. Great. Fantastic. So, Sophie, if we transported ourselves into the future, how would we look back at what we thought was good for the customer? So, uh, in thinking about this, I've been thinking about possibly geeking out in some of my anthropology or anthropological uh, history um, in terms of I've been thinking about being a good ancestor. And there's an amazing quote by Dr. Salk, who invented the polio vaccine, uh, which was our greatest responsibility is to be good ancestors. And so I'm thinking, what, um, what is a good ancestor? Um, I don't necessarily have the answers to that, but I'd like to where I'm, I'd like to share with you where I'm thinking about it, which is there's something about time and time horizons, and there's something about the breadth of what we're considering when we're doing our jobs here as a UX community. Um, so to start off with, what types of things have we or have been released in the world um, in the name of good customer experience? Oops. Oops, that one. Whoops. There we go. Um, so plastic, plastic bags, plastic shopping bags. I mean, amazingly convenient, uh, friction-free shopping. Uh, but uh, we all know that um, the oceans are getting polluted. I mean, by 2050, um, there's going to be more plastic in the ocean than there is fish by weight. Asbestos was actually the magic mineral, this amazing building product. Uh, that was fire resistant. I mean, this is a good thing, right? Uh, it's pest resistant. Um, it is also incredibly strong and uh, flexible. So, but we also know that there are 107,000 deaths each year to asbestos-related um, diseases. DDT was um, used to uh, help um, reduce malaria. Um, and by getting rid of mosquitoes. Um, you can see here, see here that um, kids would run um, after the truck that was spraying DDT. Um, so good, but also not so good. Might call these unintended consequences, um, and which is actually an interesting question for debate later. So what about what we're designing today and what we're involved in? The uh, infamous red bubble and badge and notification. So this is good in terms of we're alerting um, our users to something that may require their attention or is it causing anxiety um, and addiction and destruction, um, this attention economy that we're all in in terms of stickiness and, and drawing users back into platforms and apps. Uh, GPS location. Uh, uh, technology is amazing. I mean, you know, from finding lost pets, lost keys, um, to understanding when the next bus is coming, uh, when your Uber driver is arriving. Um, but it is also being used now. Some of these uh, tracking apps are actually being used uh, to stalk and intimidate people. 
And we've got algorithms that uh, we know are uh, building in and just replicating our biases uh, that are apparent uh, already in our society, um, but doing them sort of in an automatic or automated way and at scale. So what is good UX then? So frictionless, efficient, optimised, personalised, these are all things that we know, right? I mean, in uh, research just recently, I've noticed that customers are even using this language. Uh, I mean, I'm not quite sure what does that mean. Um, so what we end up doing when we're creating these um, experiences for customers or users, whichever term you want to use, um, is we're looking for delighting customers, you know, and we're looking for happy and engaged customers with our products and services. But I'm actually wanting to introduce this idea of a hierarchy of good, like what is good for a customer or user? So I don't think it's getting rid of all of that stuff. That stuff is good, right? Um, and it's sort of like a baseline, but we are needing to think of this hierarchy. Um, and I think it's getting towards this, this length of time and this breadth of what we're considering when we're designing products and services. So what might good look like? I think it's possibly these things that I'd like for us to strive to. So virtuous, sustainable, meaningful, respectful, um, because I think that the outcomes of that are then about our customers being grateful and our customers' well-being, as well as a social um, impacts of that in a positive way. And this is my UX stand-up joke. <laughs> now that's a customer journey. Awesome. Thank you, Sophie. I won't start stand-up. You sure you can if you like. <laughs> Absolutely. I love that. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Sophie. Um, so let's, I'd like to introduce Mitch next. Uh, Mitch specialises in leading design through delivery. Mitch has a passion for crafting and delivering human-centred products and helping clients ensure the delivered experiences are true to what the users actually want and need. Mitch, how are you going? Pretty good, thing. good, good. I understand that you're interested in the ethics of physiological aspects of UX design. Where did this interest come from for you? Well, it um, probably way back in uni, um, during my honours thesis, I was looking at um, in the in-depth about how we as designers have the power to really shape and craft different experiences and, and sort of minute pathways. Um, and then as that um, like as they move through it, there's a lot more effects on the body from that and actually effects in the, in the brain and, and the physiology of your brain. Um, and so that's pretty much where it lands into ethics today for me. So let's dive into it. So we've got our brains. Um, within our brains, we've got the limbic system and within and around that, you've got your hippocampus. So hippocampus is involved with memory creation, memory retention, and also spatial navigation as well. People with Alzheimer's or depression actually have a smaller hippocampus. That, that hippocampus retains less memory. But a hippocampus that is, is bigger is actually one that is solving problems, that is encountering challenges, and is wrestling with different scenarios that they face each day. But what does this mean for us as designers? And how do we bring this across into our work? Well, day in, day out, um, we create these experiences or paths, as I mentioned before. So you've got anything from the floor and the layout plan of, of a building to an intense navigational system or just a simple checkout process step by step as you move through. If we really break this down and look fundamentally underneath them, you can really bring it right back to different types of pathways, linear and nonlinear. A really easy way to look at this is 
as we've got here, um, as a maze or labyrinth. A linear labyrinth or maze is pretty simple. You've got one goal and there's one pathway to get from one end to the other. You're channeled in, it's simple, direct and quick. Think of like a checkout process. Whereas nonlinear, um, you've got many different choices, many different goals, many different paths to actually reach those goals. People that encounter these sort of things have got, require more cognitive load to navigate. It's more complex, you're faced with choices and challenges to get through. Think about like a complex navigation structure. Or another easy comparison is when you're just on the highway. You're going straight from point A to point B, and then whereas if you're in the middle of the city, dealing with all sorts of different inputs at the same time. So the complexity of a path that you move on actually has a really big influence on the attentiveness of, of the people that are moving through it. So studies from Oxford have actually shown that bus drivers have a smaller hippocampus because they solve linear problems day in, day out, moving along the same route from point A to point B. Whereas taxi drivers, taxi drivers actually have a larger hippocampus. It's more engaged in their solving problems day in, day out, between every single different trip for the more efficient path with all of these extra conditions coming in. They're dealing with more. Of late... We've had an influx of linear experiences. So we've got YouTube, Netflix, everything that's steering us along that single path of consumption. More, more input, uh, more opportunity to stay there, more, more grabbing of your attention, and more machine learning algorithms to lock you in and serve up that best next sleep-depriving link, video, or image. So from here, um, a really helpful way to really paint the picture further is a concept from literature. So um, Espen J. Arseth um, appropriated the term agodic. It's originally from physics, but it, 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 the back origin word from Greek is ergon, meaning work, and hodos, meaning work or path. So in agodic literature, um, Arseth states that non-trivial effort or extra effort is actually required to allow the reader to traverse the text. It's pretty hard to read. This is a book called House of Leaves. Um, and so from a design context, if we bring this into design, we can use it as a lens with which to really examine the complexities and challenges that um, users are faced with as they move through the experiences that we create. So what would ergodic design look like? So ergodic design could be us as designers deliberately applying an additional cognitive load or a step or a pause to really help someone understand and, and take that break help them face a weighted tension, help them to understand a message that they need to, to receive. Um, I'm not saying that uh, linear and nonlinear uh, are good or bad things in either, either way. There's a definite case for both. Um, but as we move through as designers, um, I really want to ask you all, sort of, are we putting enough deliberate breakpoints or friction in our designs to help um, the users understand what they're doing how long have they been, they've been engaged in there, um, or really understand what they're giving away by signing up to this next form, by giving away um, permissions and, and data and, and many other things. So next time you're designing, ask yourself, is it too simple? Yeah. Thanks, Mitch. And on that, we will have a reflective moment there for you. Go to the Menti website, enter in the code. What questions are you holding? Curiosities? Send Mitch some curveballs, if you like. Some curveballs, yes. Uh, so we want to challenge them here. We want to make them sweat a little bit up on stage. 
Um, we heard from two incredibly passionate individuals already, and we're only halfway. We've got two more. And while you're thinking of your questions, I'll introduce Harry. As Deloitte Digital's national UX lead, Harry believes it's a designer's responsibility to ensure products serve the needs of people and society more broadly. And when they do, that's also good for business. Harry, you lead one of Australia's largest UX design teams. What role has ethics played in your approach to design? And how do design teams create more ethical solutions? Um, yeah, I guess thinking about this, ethics has probably played a bigger role than I expected initially and I think um, and I can only approach it really from a personal perspective and from the perspective of those around me and who I work with because I'm not really a professor of ethics um, but I think um, ethics is probably front of mind at the moment in, in these troubled times we live in um, and I thought you know that really came through earlier this year I wanted to just kind of illustrate that in this uh, survey I sent out to the whole national UX team at Deloitte and it was a long survey but one of the questions was you know what work do you guys want to do because I I'm kind of leading this team and I'm really hoping that we can do the work that excites people. And I was expecting a lot of these things, but I wasn't actually expecting meaningful to jump out front and center like that. Um, you know, fair enough, I think we've always wanted to do meaningful work. But what I wanted to dig into there was what do we actually mean or what does my team mean by meaningful? And if I looked a bit more closely, I wonder if my laser thing is going to work. Oh, yeah. Um, up here, there's like social impact, social good, not for profit, socially impactful. And if I kind of added those things together, I realized that collectively they were a really high rate of responses from the team. So I felt, you know, what my team means by meaningful is actually work that's good for people and work that's good uh, for society. Um, and I'm sort of not up here to the team saying, hey, let's all go work on not for, uh, just non-for-profits, even though we do that, and I think we should do that. Um, the point to me is, you know, or the question I ask myself is, where do we direct all this optimism and this positive energy that's really apparent in the team? Um, and I think a really lovely suggestion on that one, I think, is this idea that was proposed. I found this guy, uh, Peter Paul Verbeck, he's a professor of... Um, uh, philosophy and technology and he has this idea of the ethics of things um, he thinks that we should apply ethical thinking to things um, which I thought was quite relevant because I make things every day so I should probably be conscious of that and um, and you know it's a weird idea too because um, ethics is normally applied to sort of how we govern people's behavior so you know kind of go well, how can things have ethics but his argument is that, you know, as people, we're actually fundamentally mediated by technology. Technology is influencing us, influencing us all the time. And even if we wanted, we could not escape that influence. Um, so, you know, then the goal becomes not to try and protect people from the influence of technology, uh, but to actually make that influence a productive one. And so I thought about that, and I realized I'm actually quite personally influenced by a whole bunch of digital things. So this little guy up there is me, actually. That's my Instagram. Um, and I'm kind of sitting on this precarious rock ledge about 500 meters up, and I, and I have a little caption below up there, and I talked about the wonderful view. Um, and I thought back to that moment, and I wasn't actually thinking about the wonderful view. I was thinking, oh, God, I hope I don't die, um, because it's a really, really big drop down there. Hurry up and take the photo. Um, and, and then, oh, maybe I'm a bit tense in the photo, because I'm kind of holding on quite tightly, so I should relax, but not too much, because I might fall. And so that was the kind of thought that was going through my head in that wonderful moment in Instagram. Um, and, you know, people do die, actually. There are people that have lost their lives in the pursuit of that perceived happiness on Instagram. So it's actually serious business. Um, and, you know, I realize I'm quite influenced by that thing. 
Um, and, uh, you know, another, another thing, you know, I'm quite influenced by Netflix as well. I think Mitch brought it up as an actual quote from Netflix CEO and, and, and a tweet from Netflix. Um, so, yeah, you know, good news because Netflix is actually winning the battle against sleep. So they're, they're winning that one, um, and they've won it with me quite often, actually. They, they won it last night, and now I'm really sleepy. <laughs> like three coffees, and this is a normal occurrence for me every week. I lose that battle t- um, against sleep and against Netflix. Um, but this is not to poke holes, obviously, at big tech companies, although I do have fun doing that. Um, this is, you know, because if I was the designer at Netflix, I thought if I was the designer at, you know, Instagram, probably I would have created the same features. Let's be honest here. I would have created the same things, you know, people want them so they say Um, i think the point is um, we can clearly see that the things that we design have influence so that puts us as designers in positions of influence so what are we doing with that platform with that power essentially and that's what i wanted to think about a bit so um, i had a, a deceptively simple suggestion here which is basically that we make good things actually good things and then by doing that collectively we make things good so a bit of a tongue twister but essentially the idea is we apply ethical frameworks to the things that we make so that uh, with all those small design decisions we can make things better um, in a broader sense so it's about the little things not the huge things that you generally focus on when you're thinking about ethics Um, and I'm a practical guy and I lead a team of designers so I wanted to think about exactly how do we do that um, so I've looked at some kind of design frameworks we use. And, and, you know, this DVF framework is a framework that we use to make good things all the time. Um, but if we apply an ethics lens to it, I think we get some higher order questions that we need to answer. So maybe instead of what people want, what we should be thinking about is what do people truly need? Um, and instead of, you know, what's a sustainable business model, we should be thinking about what's a responsible business model. And instead of, you know, what's technically possible, maybe we should think about what What's technically moral, and I think a lot of um, you know organizations have actually fallen victim to um, immoral technology at the moment and been held to account for it. So I think maybe an extension or a shift in mindset around how we apply our frameworks is what we really need as a starting point. But I wanted to dig deeper again. How do we do that? Well, how do we make things that people truly need? This one, I actually have a, a, a quite a good grasp on, I reckon. So everyone's pretty familiar with Agile's tiered hierarchy. We've got our epics, features, and stories. These things govern the backlog. That decides what value is. That decides what's built. Um, my team applies a needs architecture on top of that. So we use needs, and Mitch is nodding because we really do. Um, we use needs, goals, and tasks, and, and we use those to ensure that every epic feature and story is uh, you know directly tied to and consciously solving for a pre-existing human need, um, not just a business outcome or or, or something functional, um, and um, and I think that's been quite successful over the last few years. We use that one all the time. Um, how do we be more responsible? Well, I think one thing I've noticed is that we're getting better and better, and now we're pretty damn good at um, you know optimizing for business outcomes, at setting and tracking business outcomes. But to be responsible businesses, I think we need to actually track social outcomes. So I took a budgeting uh, tool for an example because I have to design those all the time for some reason. Um, and if we thought about that, you know, we often talk about customer engagement as success, but what if we talked about customer well-being? So what we're trying to track is not more engaged customers, but less stressed people that would mean the metric we'd look at would be you know not the percentage of customers logging into the tool but the percentage of people with spare cash at the end of the month and i think we do need to track the business outcome obviously but that shift in mindset could help us basically make people happier and i think we'd have more loyal customers uh one more 
how do we know what's moral with our tech? This is the hardest one and the one that I've had the least practical experience doing. But I think what it really comes down to is being conscious and being aware and examining the influence that the tech is having on people. So we've got to moralize the technology. We've got to think, is the influence appropriate for the context? Um, you know, is the user aware of the influence? How transparent is it? And um, how productive is that influence? Because I think what we find is when it's not an appropriate influence for the context, when we're not being transparent enough or when um, you know the user isn't sort of uh, it's not really benefiting them quite enough that's when we're actually compromising on our morals and we lose people's trust in those instances and you see it happen all the time so uh, final thought I wanted to make or I guess a call to action in a sense is um, uh, you know, all these little things that we're designing are collectively having quite increasingly large impacts on the world. They're changing the world. Um, so I think, um, you know, if we apply ethics to the things, I think collectively we can have a big impact. So what I wanted us to all think about as designers out there to the UX community and to my team is, you know, how can we optimize the things that we're designing to do good? Um, some suggestions I've walked through, but I would love to hear more from everyone else as well. So come find me. Thanks so much, Harry. Uh, firstly, I do love, um, it only took 25 minutes for Black Mirror to creep into the presentation, so expected that. <laughs> that was our very creative grad, and I love uh, that. Fantastic <laughs> gifts as well. It is interesting, this notion that we make the things, and then the things make us. So exactly. if we go back to, you know, if we make good things, the question then is, are we making better human beings? I think so. Yeah, okay. And that was one to ponder on, but I like you just answered it. That's great. <laughs> uh, a quick shout-out to Mentimeter. So if you've got some questions there, there's a lot of um, things to think about, and obviously we'd love to get in some more questions. Um, I'll introduce our last uh, panellist, Grace, uh, who leads the research practice centred on experiential design futuring. Central to her work is the use of play as a tool of transdisciplinary uh, collaboration in the design and development of strategies and experiences for people, places, and technology. Grace, I get this sense that a question is just you know never going to cut it with you. Every conversation we've had kind of goes in these wonderful tangents. But I think if we move beyond merely asking our own questions, how do you think we can create new ways to listen, uncover unmet needs, and move towards more inclusive, impactful, and importantly, radical futures for all? I would say listen to who? And what? Less people? Um, so in terms of listen to who, there is, I think um, the, the stuff that Harry was just talking about comes to this way of thinking that is ontological, which suggests that we design things, we design technologies, and those technologies shape worlds. And they shape us, right? So we shape technology and technology shapes us. We make cars and we move to the suburbs and then we're stuck in traffic and they're a terrible invention. So, uh, uh, you know, we are, uh, we are in this point in time where we're reflecting on technology in a way that is very much needed because somehow we've lost our way. And probably due to, as Sophie mentioned, the attention economy and the fact that we're so obsessed with screens, 
uh, has has meant that we've somewhat lost our critical perspective uh, and our ability to act critically on the world in terms of how we make decisions. Our technology, for better or worse, was able to put this man on the screen in power as well as this incredible young woman. So we are fighting this tension, right? Uh, for good or for bad of what our technologies can do. But we are also, like this guy, experiencing future shock. And this is an issue because we are really, really not addressing what we should be addressing as human beings or as designers. And this is resulting in us essentially being faced with this crisis of imagination. Uh, I don't know if you've seen Adam Curtis's hyper-normalization but he opens his film with, we uh, cannot imagine a different or better future, and this is very true. And we continue to see publications uh, and people addressing this point where we have this crisis of imagination and we're living in dark times, yet there is hope, right? Uh, which is exciting. And we have the opportunity to render worlds otherwise and reshape our technologies with new stories so that we can essentially move towards new worlds. And this is important, right? So what narratives do we bring to the table to reimagine futures and reframe ethics in new ways? Now... I'm a child of the 90s. I'm very glad that I am because I was able to experience boredom, which apparently young people do not experience anymore, which is very sad because when you're bored, you can think and you can act critically and imaginative and playful. We've lost the play, so I fear for the imagination of our youth in how they will address, you know, the climate catastrophe that is in front of us. Uh, but we also grew up with science fiction that was very much based on cyberpunk. Who, who likes science fiction? Who knows cyberpunk? Who's read Neuromancer? So, you know, I, I have nothing against cyberpunk. I'm, I'm into science fiction. You know, I think all futurists kind of have to be into science fiction. But I loathe the fact that most cyberpunk comes from old white guys with a very narrow view of the world, right? I much prefer Ursula Le Guin, who is, you know, a good woman. Um, <laughs> uh, but basically, a part of addressing our crisis of imagination comes back down to colonization. Most Western societies and communities try to master things. We try to master language. We try to master the other. We try to put the other, the alien, the foreign down because we can't make sense of it. And we create this other world that does not embrace difference. So 
what has happened recently is, you know, we've seen the emergence of uh, accelerationism. We're thinking about solar punk. We're thinking about societal transition, the hyperstitions that shape how we experience or navigate the world and the narratives around those. But we're also seeing this new kind of xeno-feminism and embracement of the other and queering of futures, which is this beautiful thing that opens up possibilities for everyone to imagine worlds otherwise. We're accessing Afrofuturism. We're going back into history to see things differently. Uh, we're embracing our indigenous cultures and going back to that lost knowledge to again imagine worlds otherwise. So in dealing with ethics, asking any question around ethics in design, you need to think about the social and technological and political systems that those ethics exist within, right? So how do we do that? How do we break out of this matrix that we've trapped ourselves in? We, um, we future and we think about the future and we explore the future and unknown possibilities. Now, we could continue to follow the path that the market has laid out for us so nicely and continue to respond and perpetuate the status quo or we can challenge that. We can look at alternative timescales. We can look at the trends, situations and events, the external forces that essentially shape our experiences, technologies, and ways of designing. Uh, we can think about societal transition and embed action today to longer-term visions. We can actually, in fact, start questioning power structures, which we don't do enough. Who has the power? Where are the invisible powers? What do we have power over? Who has power over us? Where is the power to change and who needs to change? What needs to change? Then we need to reimagine futures. We need to restory worlds and future scenarios so that we can better respond to reframing ethics in design. And this really comes back to, you know, a little bit more of a design-led uh, science fiction, if you like, where we create worlds to experience them, to feel them. If you all, for a second, just to do a quick experiment, unlock your phones. And now, once you've unlocked your phone, I want you to hand it to the person next to you. Let them have a look at your DNMs. <laughs> How does that make you feel? How does that make you feel? Is it uncomfortable? So basically, we need... I've gone over time, so I'm going to speed it up. Basically, we need to engage in that gut feeling to feel different futures, to connect agency to action and change, right? And we need to think about alternative timescales because usually we only work towards, you know, maximum two years if we're lucky, but let's think longer term and let's challenge the status quo because there is a better way. Thank you. Thank you, Grace.
I didn't. I knew you were going to go over five minutes, but that's okay. Sorry. <laughs> I love the way you go. Thank you. Um, now, while we ask Claire to bring the questions up on the screen from the Mentimeter, I have a question because I think it's important that we don't leave on kind of a overwhelming kind of feeling that we, you know, it's all doom and gloom. So I'd like to ask each of you quickly from your worlds, because we all live in our own worlds, um, what are you seeing currently in UX design that gives you hope and optimism for the future? So just one very quick thing. Uh, I think there's a general awakening that has spread. Um, I know that anthropology and anthropologists have been working in, say, AI for at least five years now um, in terms of establishing uh, research institutions. So um, I think that there is, I think that, that that is spreading. And I suppose that in terms of word, I kind of think that it's like an awakening that's happening. For me, as a designer, it's um, what gives me hope is the re renewed opportunity and how empowered we should all feel to really make a difference um, for, for the ethics or the actual perception of people that are actually using what we create. I'd say um, the optimism of my team gives me hope, really, and gives me confidence and has actually enabled me to challenge things in leadership meetings where I can say that's not what my team thinks or wants. So that makes me feel really optimistic about the future. What makes me optimistic is that there, there is the, this uh, awareness and collective mood that things have to change, but how do we respond to that change gives me optimism. It's like, how do we act? How do we enact that change? Thank you. Um, there was a nice note about whether we're rambling, and they're rambling in the room next to us as well, but we're having more fun with that here, aren't we? Uh, quick question on, is ethics a design problem or a business problem? Holding the mic, I mean, my whole talk was to suggest that I think it's a design problem because we are the people that are shaping the things that the business puts out. So there are no, there's no greater position of influence. Um, we may not be the decision makers all the time, but we can influence the decision makers as the bridge between the business and people. Anyone want to disagree? I'm looking for some disagreement on the panel. Someone here. disagree with me. Yeah. Um, what if the positive ethics clash with the purpose of the business? And there was another question here, just to time to that, is Deloitte an ethical company? The big questions here today. Who wants to answer that one? Is that, is looking at we it? can sit here in silence. And <laughs> I think it is a... I don't think a, a company that, you know, if you see a company as a fiction... Uh, that is as large as Deloitte, has many, many faces, has many stories. So yes, there are definitely parts of, of Deloitte that are 100% ethical um, or aim to be. I don't know what you know 100% ethical actually means. Um, uh, but yes, obviously there are parts of Deloitte that are probably you know, a few, a bit far away from the ethical North Star. But that's, that, is, that is a reality that most of us have to grapple with because the fictions that create our organisations that are quite structural like Deloitte uh, have to be reframed. And in order to reframe them you need to go through a long, long list of actions and initiatives to transition that organisation. You know, you can't just be right or wrong. You need to be in a state of transition towards something better. Uh, and uh, we hope that that is the journey that Deloitte is on.
Thank you. Uh, one more question, and then we'll look wrap it up. Um, what sort of ethical challenges have you been confronted as as a designer? Maybe for you, Harry, or Mitchell. Um, I'll pick one that I don't have a solution for, which is an odd choice. Um, I feel like a lot of the things I'm working on now and the scale and that they are at um, are contributing to the uh, automate so the automation of the workforce. So essentially, um, they're putting people out of jobs, and that's something that I worry about, and I honestly don't have an answer for. So it's one to keep front of mind as you go through. It sounds like when you the, the previous question as well, um, it's around ha the different teams having the ethics front of mind, and then that's an opportunity here to be able to really champion that within the organisation. So um, we are running out of time, and we're holding you back from lunch. So what I'd like to invite each of the panelists just one thing you'd like to leave for the audience to consider, or that you'd like to offer. Just one, I know it's hard. Can I make a plug for hiring more social scientists? Fantastic. You can ask anything you want. You can ask for a free coffee if you really want. That's not a problem as well. Fantastic. So more social scientists. I'd um, challenge us to try and think about what, what are the downstream impacts of, of what, we, what we are designing today, like the unforeseen um, impacts. I know it's hard to sort of um, solve for problems that you don't even know are there yet, but um, keep things open enough that you can actually uh, work to solve them in future. I think I'd say, oh, this is really loud. Um, I think I'd say it's easy to challenge the ethics of any of the organizations that probably most of us work for. What my, I'd suggest is that we don't, uh, we engage in that. So lean into these companies, reflect on the ethics and challenge them from the inside because that's where we'll actually get change. Um. I'd like to leave you with, uh, I would interrogate everything, including the organisations you work for, uh, interrogate the futures that are served to you, and I would find uh, whatever way you have possible to reframe how you look at the world and how you can become different and better and more sustainable. Challenger Mindset. That's a great one to finish on. Please join me in thanking Sophie, Mitch, Harry and Grace.